0: I wish you could have seen your faces when Hannah sat down at that bench with Pat. All of a sudden, everybody's craning their neck. (laughs) Wasn't that good? We need to do that again sometime. Uh, That was excellent. I I listened to them rehearse the other night. I thought, boy, this is going to be good whenever it comes. I appreciate that. I appreciate that tonight. Um, Four hands better than two, apparently. Uh, That worked out well. Let's find, would you, Revelation chapter number 14. And um, tonight and then, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we're going to look at the idea of when the end comes. So tonight, part one, next Sunday morning, if God allows us to be together next Sunday morning, part two, when the end comes. These next several verses... Uh, that we'll look at can be broken up into two parts. When the end comes for the sinner, we'll look at that tonight. Next Sunday, when the end comes for the saint. Two very different stories, isn't it? You know it already. Two very different endings here. Revelation chapter 14 is an interesting chapter. It's, it's like God's doing some tribulation house cleaning. Uh, In this particular passage, in verses 1 through 5, we looked at that this morning, we get reintroduced to the 144,000. These are the Jewish evangelists who've been saved and sealed, and they were commissioned to take the gospel to the world, to those people who never had the opportunity to hear it before the rapture. And they go out across every people group. The Bible says that when we get to heaven, every people group in the world will be represented there. That's an interesting thought. They're going to go throughout the whole world and take the gospel, and they are going to be, while the tribulation period is going on, they are going to be divinely protected. And in chapter 14, uh, their ministry concluded, we find them in the presence of Jesus, and they're singing this new song. In in chapter 14, starting at, at verse number 14 through number 20, it talks about the Battle of Armageddon, what we call the Battle of Armageddon. How many were here Wednesday night and you heard John Phillips Were you with us on Wednesday night? John Phillips talked about that. uh, He talked about that battle, didn't he? He said, It's not much of a battle. We say the battle of Armageddon. There's not going to be much to it. Uh, God speaks the word, the battle's done, and every enemy is put down there. Um, We call it the battle of Armageddon. It's described in verses 14 through 20. But between there, verses 6 through 13, we're going to look at two very different classes of people those who are saved and those who are not. When the end comes, part one tonight, part two next Sunday. Tonight we're gonna, we're gonna look at verses six through 11. When the end comes for the sinner, what, what the end holds for the sinner? That lost person, the one without Christ. You know some of them. Do you know that you and I may know someone right now who's going to experience the great tribulation period? We know lost people, don't we? That without Christ, they're going to be left here for what we've been studying for these last few weeks. When the end comes, uh, when it comes, it's going to come for everyone, obviously. But tonight, what the end holds for the sinner, these, these, uh, uh, these verses are prophetic in their interpretation. They tell us what is coming, but they are relevant for us today prior to the rapture. And the reason is, here's a a nice opening thought, eventually every person in this room is going to come to the end of your earthly journey. By death or by rapture, every person in this room tonight, every person in this world is going to come to the end of their earthly journey. We may not like to think about our death, but be honest, it is part of your life. Death is part of your life. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. And so I would give great thought to it if I were you. I'd make great planning for it. Um, I, I spoke with, uh, I spoke with a, a man this last week who his father unexpectedly went home to be with the Lord. And he said, you know, he said, I was at the funeral home uh, on Monday night. And uh, he said, you know, all, everything you see going on here, he said, Dad had this all planned out as he, in fact, he planned it out eight years ago. I'd be prepared if I were you. Be ready for the end. The end's coming. And that's that, the end of the world. I'm not, I'm not a doomsdayer in saying that. I'm, I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but I know what the Bible says. And it says the end's coming. Um, I'm not for trashing the planet, but I'm not, a, I, I'm not this person who uh, is, is an earth lover. God's got terrible plans for this planet. Nothing you or I do through the kind of car you drive, nothing you or I do is going to mess up this planet like God's going to judge it. There is a terrible judgment coming to the physical planet. Now, I think we ought to be a good steward of the planet. Certainly, God's given us dominion over the planet. We ought to be good stewards. But we don't worship the creature or the creation more than we do the creator. So the end's coming. What are we going to do about it? Well, as Christians, we want to be prepared, and God willing, you are prepared tonight, and I'm glad God tells us how we can be prepared. He didn't just, uh, like the deists, you know, several of our founding fathers were deists in their faith. By that, they believed that God created the world, but then he just took a hands-off approach. He created the world, set everything in motion, then, boys, work it out. Well, that's not true at all. God's a very hands-on God. God. Um, so hands-on that he knows how many hairs are on my head, and he knows each hair individually on my head and on yours. That's not a hands-off God. That's a God who's intimately interested in me and in you. And he's provided a way for us to know how to go to heaven when we die. When the end comes, the challenge from Scripture is be ready for it. The the end ought not to take you by surprise. They told uh, all the prophets in the Old Testament, so many of them gave details about the first coming of Christ that even the Gentile wise men from the east knew when and where to go look for a newborn king of the Jews. Well, God's given us much more detail about the second coming and what to watch for in the days leading up to it, so let's not be caught off guard. He's coming soon. Do we know the day or the hour? Nope. That information's been held closely by God the Father, Jesus said. But we can know the times in which we live. So be prepared. When the end comes, time to prepare is done. It is done. In fact, I I wrote this down. Whatever state we are in at the end is the state in which we will reside for eternity. I'm not talking about Tennessee or North Carolina. I'm talking about whatever spiritual states you are in at the end, that's your state for eternity. I know there are religions out there that talk about people being baptized for the dead, and you can pray for the dead. Don't waste your time or energy because God says when the end comes— Whatever state you are in at the end is the state in which we will reside for eternity. If you die saved, you're saved for eternity. But if you die lost, if your loved one dies lost, they're lost for eternity. So tonight, in these five or six verses, verses 6 through 11, what the end holds for the sinner. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 3 says this. How plain is this? If the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. That's pretty plain, isn't it? If a tree falls in the woods, back here behind our church, if a tree falls back here, and if it falls pointing north, pretty much where it is. If you die unsaved, that's pretty much where you are. That's that's it. This is a scriptural principle here. So our lives are determined this side of eternity. Be ready for it. I had a pastor up in Michigan. He said that this life that you and I have been given is the dressing room for eternity. This is not the big show. This is the preparation. This is the dressing room to get ready for eternity. So we want to make sure that we understand exactly what's going to happen to the lost people because hopefully it will motivate me better and motivate you better to share the gospel with those that need it. It's not good enough that I'm not going to hell. It's just not good enough that I, I have that salvation. What I need is to be willing to share that with others and ready, ready to share it with others. I may not be able to answer every Bible question that someone has, nor may you, but we can tell them what happened like Paul did, Paul just told them what happened to him. You remember, I love that that blind man in John chapter number 11. Remember him? They were asking all those religious Jews, Jesus healed this guy, and all these religious Jews are asking this blind man, well, who was it that healed you? Where did he come from? What is he saying? And, And the blind man said, wait a minute, I don't know all those things, but I do know this. Remember what he told them? I was blind. Now I see. I do know that. You may not have the answer to every Bible question someone throws your way, but you can tell them this. I don't know that, but I do know this. Before I was going to hell, not going to hell anymore. Before I was responsible for my sins and its penalty, not anymore. All you have to do is tell what happened to you. So hopefully what we, what we see tonight in Revelation 14 will help us do that. Tonight, part one. Lord willing, next Sunday, part two. Tonight, let's look at what the future holds, what the end holds for the sinner. Verse number six, Revelation chapter 14. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God. And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Wow, that is a brutal passage of Scripture. Is God let me just ask you, because I is God being at all unclear here? I I don't I don't think, and I might be wrong, I don't think this is hard to understand. There is such a high percentage of those words that are one-syllable words in that passage of Scripture. The truth is God is being very clear. He wants people to know there is a terrible price to pay for rejecting my son. There's great reward for accepting him. But to reject him, there's a terrible price to pay. And he describes it here. So we're going to look tonight at what the end holds for the sinner. We've prayed and we've asked God to bless his word to us tonight to know what to do with it. So let's jump into this outline. We have three angels that we're looking at. They they show up run right after another and each of them have a distinct message. So let's look at what they say tonight. First of all, I want you to see in verses 6 and 7 a final proclamation, a final proclamation. The message being delivered to the earth, and I lo- don't you love the way that reads this angel comes. He has the everlasting gospel. Don't you like that? I, I take great comfort in that. The gospel that saved me, the gospel in which I, I, have, I have banked my eternity on the veracity of this gospel. And here we are at the end of time, at the end of, of the world, and God's saying this. Listen, it's the everlasting gospel. It's not going to change. You bank your eternity on it, it's going to be there. This message comes from this angel. He is preaching the everlasting gospel. It's the same message that Jesus preached. It's the same message that Isaiah preached when he said, he quoted God saying, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth. It's the same message Paul preached. Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Mr. Moody, they preached it. We're still preaching it today. It's the everlasting gospel. It's true. The gospel is defined, and you know this, it's defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the very beginning of the chapter. And it says, here's the gospel. This is the gospel that's been delivered to you. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You believe the gospel and you'll be saved. That's the gospel defined, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. And we're, we certainly don't have time to turn to all of these, but the Bible says so much about this gospel. Let me just walk you through some verses, some, some references tonight. And, and as soon as I say some of these, you're going to remember them, I'm sure, because they're not obscure passages. Romans 1.16 says that this gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth. This gospel, this everlasting gospel that this angel is preaching after the rapture and right before God's final judgment on the earth this angel is preaching this gospel the one that has the power of God unto salvation in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9 it's a simple message the gospel is simple confess with your mouth believe in your heart in Romans 10:13 it's a universal message for whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord shall be saved in John 3:16 It's a message that is motivated by the very love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his son. In John 6, 37, it is a message of promised hope. In that same chapter, verse 47, John 6, 47, it's a message that offers eternal salvation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, it's a message that offers peace with God. It's the message that's hinted at in Genesis three twenty one, when the Bible says, and here's the hint. You remember after Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked. And it dawned on, them. they didn't know it, but it dawned on them after they sinned, they were naked. So what did they do to take care of that? You remember? With what? Fig leaves. They went out and got some plants that they could have grown and tried to work out their own covering for their sin. God said that's not going to be good enough. So animals died because when when God covered them, he covered them with an animal's skin. So some kind of animal died so that their sin could be covered. That's the first hint of the gospel. It was on the gospel is the message of somebody else taking care of my sin, taking care of your sin. According to John chapter 14 verses 1 through 6 and Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, this gospel, this everlasting gospel is the only message that can save a soul from God's judgment. So when we read in this verse 6 that another angel comes in, he's flying in the midst of heaven, and he's flying, I believe, within the atmosphere of earth, and he is audibly crying out, He's crying out a message presenting the everlasting gospel, the same gospel that saved you, the same gospel that saved me. Yet with all of these things going for the gospel, hope, eternality, peace, forgiveness, with all of these things going for it, this message is by and large rejected by the world. And it will be even more so in this day. Have you stopped to think about this? That the large majority of the people in the world who have heard the gospel have rejected it. Not even close. It's it's not even close, the, the, the ratio. Most people who have heard the gospel have ignored it and rejected it. They've done that in the past. They're doing it today. And they're going to do it when this angel is proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Most people, even in that day, with all the things they see, all of the supernatural things that are seen in the world, most people are going to reject this gospel. I thank God for the millions who have been saved and for many more who will yet be saved. But far more are going to be lost than are going to be saved. How how do you say that, Pastor? Why do you say that? Jesus said it. I didn't say it. That's not my quote. That's Jesus saying there are really just two roads in this world. There's one that's broad and there's one that's narrow. There's one that leads to destruction. There's one that leads to life everlasting. And he uses, very easy, again, very easy to understand words, doesn't he? That broad way that leads to destruction, he says this, many are on that road. And he goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum to describe those walking the narrow road to life everlasting. He says there's few that find it. The majority of the people who have heard the gospel and they understand what the gospel is, they've rejected it. And that's going to prove true in the tribulation period. Most in the tribulation are going to refuse to hear these 144,000 evangelists and these two witnesses. They're going to celebrate when the witnesses die. You remember how they, they party in the streets around the world. They celebrate their death. That's rejection of the gospel. During the final days of the earth, the everlasting gospel is going to be heralded not by a man, but by an angel that I think is going to be visible. And the world's still going to reject this. Now, I, I can't say for certain, but I, I believe that angel's going to be visible. I know he's going to be audible. Because the Bible says there in verse number 6, he has the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And verse 7 says what? He says this with a loud voice. I think he's going to be visible and audible. And most are going to reject him. Revelation chapter 14 says, shows that after the world rejects all human efforts to bring them to Jesus the 144,000 have gone out they've been preaching for 7 years the event the, the two witnesses there in Jerusalem have been preaching for years human efforts Men, physical, literal men, they've been preaching. After all human efforts have been exhausted, God sends an angel to preach this gospel to a universal audience once again. He's going to call everyone, everywhere, to flee the wrath that is coming. He says, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment is come. He's preaching judgment. But he's giving, here again, is God not a gracious God? Here again, he's giving another avenue of escape. The 144,000 have been preaching it. The, The two witnesses have been preaching it. Now here's an angel preaching it. The whole world invited to come to Christ for salvation. He's going to call people to refuse the Antichrist. Don't take that mark. This angel's call will be a powerful proclamation by a powerful preacher. In my mind, and you're probably the same way, in my mind, if I look out there and see an angel flying around and I hear him saying, God is getting ready to judge this world, I'm thinking, how in the world can you reject that message? It's one thing if some some young preacher stands up in a church somewhere and says that. It's it's something if Billy Graham stands in a stadium and says that to 100,000 people. Because he's just a man. But an angel flying around? Proclaiming that, that God is going to judge the world? In my mind and in your mind, you're thinking... How in the world can people reject this? I mean, human preachers have been saying for thousands of years now, "You need to get saved." Jesus is coming. We've been saying for two thousand years, "Jesus is coming back." I mean, we haven't, but Christians have. But if an angel's flying around saying, "It's getting close. Judgment's coming. Fear God. Give Him glory." Why in the world won't they why in the world won't they turn but here's the truth it's going to mostly fall on deaf ears they they're going to reject he's preaching grace he's preaching judgment and this salvation offered through Jesus Christ their only hope is going to be sadly rejected and when he's rejected listen to the words of hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 When Jesus is rejected, this is what it says, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. What is he saying? There's only one way. There is one name given under heaven whereby we must, underline that in your mind or in your Bible, whereby we must be saved. It's not we should be. We, We have to be. We must be saved. This first angel appears to be God's final call to the world, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6-2 will never be more true in that day when he says today is the day of salvation. I think you're looking at God's final call to the earth in Revelation chapter chapter 14 verses 6 and 7. I think you're looking at God's final call to the earth. Fear God. Give him glory. It's a final proclamation. Tell your friends and your loved ones that you don't want to go to hell. Tell them, don't put this off. There's a final proclamation here. Verse number 8, second thing. Verse number 8, there is a fatal pronouncement. Now, verse number 6 and 7, you've got grace being extended, don't you? Come to God. This angel's flying around with the everlasting gospel. That stops in verse number eight. A second angel shows up. Another angel, it says. That word another means another of the same kind. So it's a heavenly being. And he's saying this Babylon is fallen. And that's not a misprint in your Bible. Babylon is fallen, comma, is fallen. There's an emphasis being made there, isn't there? That great city, because she made all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 8 is a fatal pronouncement. God's final call to grace has been rejected. So this second angel shows up, and he pronounces, he pronounces judgment on, of all things, Babylon. Babylon. Twice this angel says this city has fallen. And so whatever Babylon is, the, the message is being driven home. This judgment is certain. Babylon is going to fall. Just don't don't misunderstand it. Twice God says that. We're going to talk about Babylon later on in Revelation chapter 17 18. We're going to get into it later. But for today, what I want to do is why why here? Why is Babylon used here? What is God saying in singling out this city above all the other cities in the world? There There are wicked cities in this world. In our nation and in other nations, there are just wicked cities. Why do you take Babylon and elevate it above all the rest of them? Well, here's, here's why. Because Babylon in the Bible is more than just a city. Here, here's what you need to know. When you're reading especially prophetical passages of Scripture, keep in mind that Babylon is more than just a geographical city over in the Middle East. In Iraq, actually. It's more than that. Babylon is a philosophy. It represents in scripture, in the book of Revelation at least, it represents a system of unbelief. Everything that the world is and everything that stands in opposition to God is wound up in that word. Babylon is that worldly system that opposes God, opposes his word, opposes his will. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, and there is a man there by the name of Cush, C-U-S-H, or C-U-S-H, yeah. He has a son. You may not know Cush, but you'll recognize the name of his, one of his sons anyway, Nimrod. The Bible has some interesting things to say about Nimrod, and he founded a city called Babel, B-A-B-E-L, Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10. That city of Babel is is where mankind rebelled against God and and attempted to build the tower. Remember the Tower of Babel? And do you remember their whole goal in that? We're going to build this thing up to heaven. We're we're going to reach up to heaven. I mean, um, that was Satan's promise to Eve back in in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? You're going to be his God. And she said, well, let me have that. Let me have that fruit then. And here... Six, uh, six or seven chapters later in Genesis 10, they're going to build this thing and this tower is going to be built and they're going to use it to worship themselves and to worship the zodiac and the heavenly bodies and they're going to build this tower up and it's going to be a great place for worship, false worship. It's the first recorded place in the scripture where a collective group of people got together to build a false religious system. It's Babel. You know what happens there. It's They started going at it, and God all of a sudden, I, don't you just like the power God has? All of a sudden, nobody knows what their neighbor is saying. Just, they, they don't have a clue what's going on. We are watching a show today, and we are watching a show this afternoon, and there was a, a segment in this show where these people are talking about this dog that they think is depressed. And, Um, they're, They're talking, and they're talking to the dog, and they're talking gently to it because that's what the dog psychiatrist told them to do. And then they showed what they were saying from the dog's perspective, and it was... That dog didn't have a clue what those people were saying. I imagine that's how it was at Babel. All of a sudden two carpenters or two masons or two plumbers working side by side and everything's going fine everything's plumb everything's right on schedule for construction and all of a sudden I got no idea what this guy's saying to me. God the Bible says confounded their languages. Just like that. That is it. That is incredible power. Aren't you glad you serve that God? Oh that's that's an amazing thing. Well, that was Babel, and from there, you you know the story, everybody dispersed, but stay there at Babel. That's the beginning of the city of Babylon. When Judah decided they wanted to worship other idols, remember John how John Phillips spun this story? When Judah decided back in the Old Testament they wanted to worship not only the true God, they wanted to add to that, so they were going to worship a bunch of idols, and John Phillips says it like this. When Judah decided that they wanted to be involved in idolatry, God chose to put them in the very heart of idolatry, and he sent them for seventy years into captivity in the city of Babylon. You see, Babylon's not just a it's just not a, a geographical and physical city in the book of Revelation. It's a philosophy, it's a false religion. And this second angel that shows up. He's come to pronounce judgment against all that. This world is full of false religions that men have come up with. There was no divine inspiration. It was men's minds and men's depravity that drove them to other gods. We want to blame that on the devil. Well, the devil was behind all that. No, I don't think so. I think when the children of Israel built that golden calf back there in in, uh, the wilderness, I don't think the devil had anything to do with it. I think that's on us. That's on our heart. Now, I'd love to blame the devil for everything bad I do, but I don't get to do that because my heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. And man's heart drove him to find a God that would accommodate his sin. And so Babylon, Nimrod is the father of false religion in this world, and it seduced people away from the true God. And they left Babel, and they took that false. Now, their, their partnerships ended because they couldn't understand each other. But when they dispersed, they took that idea of false religion with them. And that's why you have false religion down in Brazil and over in India and in North America and in Africa. That's why there's false religion everywhere, because when mankind spread, they may not have had the same language anymore, but they they still had that same contaminated set of worship rules in them, a false religion other than the true God. That's why Babylon represents all of the world system that opposes God, because that's its origin. So in the tribulation period, Babylon speaks of the economic and religious kingdom of the Antichrist. So when he says in verse number 8, Babylon is fallen, that's a proclamation. God has come to clean house. Everything that man has set up economically and politically and spiritually that contributes to make this great, uh, this great city of Babylon in the world, this world system, God's coming to address that. You know, in, in the Old Testament, that passage of Scripture where, you remember when David was running from Saul and he had 600 men following him and their families, and there came that part where he wanted to get some food from Nabal. Remember that? And he went to him, and and culturally this was an acceptable request. Could we get food for our men? And Nabal was just a churlish man, the Bible says, an angry, selfish, self-centered man, and he refused him. Remember that? Do you remember David's response to that? When those servants, those messengers that he sent to Nabal to get the food, when they came back and they told David what he said, here was David's response. Gird on your swords. Strap, them, strap on the swords, boys. Verse number 8 is God girding on his sword. We're going to deal with Babylon. That's, that's what That's what the Trinity has come to. We're going to deal with this. False religion, this worship of money, This pursuit of pleasure, everything instead of me and instead of my son, Babylon's about to fall. And that's what he says. And he says it here twice. It's pictured, Babylon in this book is pictured as a harlot seducing foolish sinners of the world, leading them away from God with her lies. Now she's going to pay a terrible price for that. God's going to come in judgment. The philosophy behind all of man's heresy and all of man's rebellion is going to be destroyed. Now, first, God sent an angel out with the everlasting gospel. And he said, fear God. Give God glory. Rejected. Babylon's going to fall then. And here comes God, a final proclamation a fatal pronouncement there in verse number 8, and then verses 9, 10, and 11, a fearful portrayal. I, I can't read, nor should you be able to, read verses 9 through 11 with any sense of peace. If you know someone who doesn't know Christ, verses 9 through 11 ought to bug you. And if they don't, God help your heart. There is a terrible judgment coming. Here comes the third angel. It says there in verse number 9, and in this vision, John sees this angel pronouncing God's judgment on all who have received the mark of the beast and who are worshiping the Antichrist. And he reveals what's going to happen to all of those who refused that everlasting gospel and they kept worshiping uh, Antichrist. Now he preaches this fearful message. And can I just say this? Every Every gospel claiming church ought to be preaching this message today. There is such a lack of and let's just use let's just use God's word here. There is such a lack of fire and brimstone preaching in churches today that no one's afraid to be a sinner. That's the truth. But boy this This sure lays it out very plain. Revelation chapter 14, verse number 9. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead and in his hand... The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whoso receiveth the mark of his name. This is a terrible picture, and I think the only way we can grasp all this and and make sure we get it, let's take it phrase by phrase, beginning at verse number 10. First of all, it talks about the wine of the wrath of God. Now, earlier we read about Babylon's wine. It's the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But now we're reading about the wine of the wrath of God. This picture, that word wrath there, It pictures an exploding wrath. It is sudden. It is fierce. It is a passionate display of the anger of God. That's what's coming. This word wrath, it's the word thumos. It's it's not one that has accumulated suddenly. It's been accumulating for a long time. It's just that it explodes suddenly, and it's going to be poured out on this world, a time of sudden judgment from which there is no escape. It's, it's the wine of the wrath of God, and the world's going to drink it. Then there's that second phrase describing God's wrath here, the wine of God's wrath. It says it's poured without mixture. That means it's not going to be weakened. It's not going to be diluted. It's going to be God's pure, holy wrath. Psalm chapter 19 and verse 9 says that God's judgment is true and righteous altogether. When God does choose to pour out his terrible wrath on this world, it's going to be just. In fact, it's going to be righteous It is poured without mixture. Sinners and Satan have never experienced the undiluted fury of a holy God. But they're going to. That's a scary phrase. That his wrath will be poured out without mixture. No holding back. God's judged the world before. You remember when he he flooded the whole world? The whole world was destroyed by a flood. Do you know that God held back? God held back in that. Not here. The world is going to be so judged, you remember the phrase of the Bible, that the heaven and the earth will melt away with fervent heat. That didn't happen back at the flood. There was was some holding back. There was some some softening even, even in the terrible flood that destroyed the population of the world except for eight souls. But not here. The wine of his wrath is going to be poured without mixture. Hebrews 10.31 and 12.29. Hebrews 12.29. Those verses say two things. 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. That's what's going on here. There's the next phrase. It talks about the cup of his indignation. You get that indignation. It's the word orge. It pictures a slow rising anger. This thing is building up and building up and building up. The pressure's building. It's, it's, a, it's a pressure cooker. It's been accumulating for a long time. Indignation pictures a person holding back their anger, becoming red faced until they can't do it anymore. They just can't. Hold it back. I don't know who said it first. Either Adrian Rogers or John Phillips said it, but there's also an indication that Jonathan Edwards used this analogy. Even now, the waters of God's wrath are beating against the dam of His grace. There's going to come a time when that dam's not going to hold anymore. His grace. He, Your life is everlasting in Christ. It's eternal. God's grace is not eternally offered to this world. There will come a time when the dam of his grace will no longer hold back the waters of his wrath. And it's going to be poured out in fury. That pressure's building today. You see God's judgment kind of easing easing out in various parts of our cultures in various parts of our world. You see God's judgment coming here and coming there. But on this day, it's going to burst out. It's going to break through. The dam's going the dam's going to break. I, I watched some videos this last week just to again, just kind of shaping my mind of dams bursting. It's devastating. The 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 right dam in the wrong place failing, sometimes without warning. Now, some places they had warning. You know what we have in the scriptures? We have a warning that this dam's going to bust. Amen. We have warning after warning after warning. But there are those places where there's no warning. And when the dam bursts and nobody got, nobody got word of that, and all of a sudden there are trillions of gallons of water flying toward these unsuspecting people. That's not the case of scripture, though. God's telling us that the dam is going to one day let the wrath pass through. When people who are able to discern right and wrong die without Jesus, they go to hell. There in there in verse number uh, there in verse number ten, it says right in the middle of the verse it says. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land. I don't know if there's a a better picture to conjure up the idea of hell than fire and brimstone. that's That's just a very descriptive term to me. And verse 11 says the tormenting horror that's going to accompany that, it goes on forever. It gets going and it has absolutely no end these people are damned to a place where they will never die my pastor when i was in college his name was dan broadus he used to say people in hell they're always dying but never dead he described that always burning to death but never but never dying suffering for eternity and then there's that there's that phrase there at the end of verse 10 did you catch that this eternal hell, this suffering that's going on. Did you see that at the end of verse 10? They're doing that suffering in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's an interesting phrase. That's describing eternal hell. What, what in the world's going on there? The heavenly host and the Lamb, capital L, Lamb of God, stand as a reminder to the lost sinner they did not have to go to that horrible place. Grace was offered. Salvation was given. They could have been saved had they turned to Jesus Christ. This is one of those what ifs. And can I just put a pause button here on on this? This is just one of those what ifs that my mind kind of goes to. There's a parable in Well, I say a parable. It's really, I don't believe it's a parable. There's a story in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man who had a lot of money and about a poor man who had nothing. The rich man, we don't have his name. I think it's because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, so we don't get his name. But the poor man, we do get his name. His name's Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus in John chapter 10, different Lazarus. This guy, this Lazarus, is a beggar. He's poor. He dies. The Bible says he goes to paradise. He's in Abraham's bosom. The the rich man dies without Christ, goes to hell. Do you remember this story? I'm talking to Sunday night crowd, so I want to make sure we're on the same page. Do you remember it says that he's in hell, and he lifts up his eyes, and he sees Abraham and Lazarus. Do you remember that? Okay. Here's the what if, and I'm not saying this is true. It never says that Lazarus sees that man. Abraham does, but it doesn't say Lazarus does. There's no communication between the man in hell and Lazarus. What if part of the torment of hell is that those in hell see heaven for eternity while they're burning to death for eternity? What if part of the torment of hell is to see that they did not have to be where they are? I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know that for a while, at least, that that rich man in hell could see heaven. He saw Lazarus being comforted. I don't know that Lazarus ever saw him. A a one-way mirror, if you would. But what if part of hell is that they can see heaven. Because right here it says in this verse that they are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb of God. I don't know if that's true or not, but how how terrible would that be? You know, it can be totally dark in hell like it says in the scripture and they still be able to see. How many of you have ever been in a movie theater and couldn't see, hardly see the person next to you? But you can see that screen. What what if? Hell's a terrible place. And the Bible says that it's going to be in the presence of the whole they're going to, this fire and brimstone, this suffering there, the torment that suffered there, it's in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It didn't have to be that way for those people. Jesus came. Jesus died for them. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus literally became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It did not have to be this end for these people. Christ came and made a way of escape, a great way of escape. While he was on that cross, he was judged as I should have been judged or as you should have been judged. He did that so they didn't have to go to hell. He was so judged. He was so judged that there came a point when he looked to his father in heaven. He said, why have you forsaken me? That's the depth of the judgment. I'm saying that they didn't have to go there. Jesus has already experienced the undiluted wrath of God in my place. All I have to do is accept that. All you have to do is accept that. He suffered on this cross because we're sinners, not because, of, not because he is. And for eternity, those people in hell, whether or, not, whether or not they can see him, they will know Jesus could have been my Savior. He could have been My Savior. So the question is, maybe for you tonight, but the question is for the lost loved ones that you know or lost friends that you have. The question is this, where are you going to be one millisecond after you die? Where will you be one millisecond after you die? Because wherever you are one millisecond after you die, that is where you'll be for eternity no escape no purgatory no baptism or prayers for the dead and it's described terribly here in verses 9 10 and 11 of revelation chapter 14 if that doesn't motivate you and i to be generous with the gospel i don't think anything will to share the gospel with people and it's this plain it's this simple john 3:36 says this he that believeth On the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That phrase, believe on Christ, versus the phrase, believe in Christ, is vastly different. Because Satan believes in Jesus, but he doesn't believe on him. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that he fears God. He that believeth on the Son hath life. I'm saying, man, the unsaved in this world today, they walk a very dangerous path because of the uncertainty of life. We don't know when this is going to take place, but we do know this. One day they're going to lose everything. The only reason lost, would you think about this? This is our closing thought. The only reason lost people are not in hell today is because of God's mercy. Yes. That's the only reason. Because I deserved it. And you deserved it. The only reason lost people walking this earth today are not already in hell is because of God's mercy. But the truth is that any moment the dam of his grace bursts. And his wrath will pour pour through. And they will be plunged into a Christless eternity. How important is it that we get the message out? Jesus said in John 7, 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. We'll talk about it at the end of this Bible. But at the end of the Bible, the, the invitations are going out left and right. The spirit says come. The bride says come. If you're thirsty, come. It's important to get this message out. Christian, these true words must motivate us to share the gospel. They have to motivate us to do that. And and I've said this before, and if I'm wrong, God can correct me when I get there. I believe it's the primary reason you're left here after you're saved is to tell people about being saved. If God loves us like he does, why in the world would he leave me in a sin-cursed body, living in a sin-cursed world, fighting the opposition of Satan and all of his dominion? Why would God leave me here except to tell others about Christ like Paul did, like that former blind man did? Look, I... Uh, whether he's this or whether he's that, I don't know. I can just tell you that I was blind, and now I see. That's why you're here, and that's why I'm here, to tell people about this Christ. The truth is that lost people don't have to go to hell today. They don't have to. They can hear the gospel, and the Holy Spirit can quicken their heart, and they can be saved, and they need to be saved. Because if they don't, Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, is their unavoidable eternity. They must be saved by the name of Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is urgent, church. It's urgent that you're... You can get involved in a lot of things in this world. I know your job keeps you busy. Your hobby keeps you busy. I know there are a lot of things you can be involved in. There is nothing more important for the Christian today than to be aware of lost people around them, that God has brought you into their path at a particular time. And it's the day that God has chose to save them. And you're right there with the right words. You're right there with uh, what the writer of Proverbs said. It's uh, a word spoken in due season. Man, it's like a cup of cold water. Write what they need. So know God's word. Know how to tell somebody about how to be saved. Say, Pastor, I don't know it. Then learn it. It's not hard. How did you get saved? What verse did someone show you in the Bible that, for lack of a better term, just puts you right over the edge? Was it that verse that says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? And some good gospel Christian, gospel believing Christian said, now look where it says whosoever, just put your name there. You ever heard that? Romans ten thirteen. You can lead someone to Christ. You just have to know that one verse. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now look, put your name where it says whosoever. For if Mark Campbell will call on the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. I, I can't tell you how urgent this is, church. I, Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. And I know the, the doubters and the skeptics, they're saying what they said to Peter. People have been talking about the coming of the Lord forever. They have been, and it's no less true today. He's coming soon. You and I need to do what we can do to, to share the gospel with people, for people to be saved. Be ready with an answer. When someone asks you about the hope that you have in Christ, be ready with an answer. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready with that answer. Be ready to go. Let's stand together, can we? Father, your word is true. And at times the words that are true in the Bible that we read give us great comfort. And they bring peace. That song Stephanie played this morning about it is well with our soul. Your word encourages that wellness of our soul. And then there are passages of scripture like this. When we read what the end is holding for the sinner. And it does not give us peace. It stirs us up. And it makes us us nervous for people and fearful for people who don't know you. And God, I know that there are people in this room right now, they are thinking of somebody that they know who isn't saved. Lord, would you provide opportunities this week for us to cross paths with those people that you're ready to pull into your kingdom? You're ready to birth them into the family of God. You're ready for them to have their sins forgiven. And now they've had the seed sown. That seed has been watered and you're ready to bring a harvest in their soul. Help us to be ready to be tools in your hands to share the gospel that someone will be saved. Thank you for saving us. Lord, we didn't deserve that. Thank you for your grace and your mercy extended to us. I pray, Lord, that you'd impress upon us the need to be faithful witnesses. In your name I pray, amen. Would you hold your head bowed for just a moment? I'm gonna give you an opportunity tonight to respond to